Welcome back to another edition of Official Word Sports, the podcast. I'm Vince, and I'm here with my co-host, Stevie D. And Stevie D, we've had some great shows over the last couple weeks, and we've been fortunate enough to have some key guests. And today is no other. So go ahead and take it away, Stevie D. Well, thanks, Vince. You know, it's uh, it's a real honor to introduce our next guest. Um, he's a former NFL linebacker that has played 10 years in the league, no other than Sean Barber. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Always good and glad to be here. like to spread and uh, be able to tell a little knowledge, drop a little knowledge. Hopefully that knowledge becomes wisdom, and uh, we can we can tell the people something that makes them, uh, make them come back for more. Excellent. So, you mean we're going to class? i got to get a pen and paper? Oh, definitely. Yeah, baby. I'm going to spend my time talking. You definitely got to have a pen and paper to write that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So, so Sean, um, for, our, for our listeners out here um, that may or may not know you as a, as a former football player, uh, we'd like to just kind of take you through your early life um, and how Sean Barber became Sean Barber from, from your early life back in, in high school and then kind of take us through, through college and, and what kind of made you who you are today. All right. Well, for the sake of the people that are listening, uh, I'll make sure that um, I'm, I'm going to give you the two-minute version instead of the 20-minute version. Um, I started, I was a multi-dimensional, multi-sport kid, uh, played youth sports. Uh, basically, my neighbor down the street was the head of uh, Virginia Randolph Rams. So I played Rams uh, baseball, football, basketball, anything that, had, that he was coaching, I was playing um, until I, I broke my arm. I broke my arm. Um, and that kept me off the basketball courts. I thought I was going to be, you know, from Virginia. Everybody thinks they're going to be the next Allen Iverson. So I, I, I thought I was going to be a basketball player. Um, I broke my arm, so uh, I kind of started to lean towards more physical sports. Um, I didn't really play organized football until the 11th grade. Um, so I was in high school, a Hermitage High School, Richmond, Virginia. Um, some classmates of mine was Jamie Sharper, who won a Super Bowl with the Ravens. Um, infamous um, Darren Sharper, who won Super Bowl with the New Orleans Saints, also played with the Packers and the Vikings. Um, those are classmates of mine. Um, like I said, I started playing football in the, in the 11th grade. Um, at that time, I was a safety. And then in my 12th grade year, I ended up being a wide receiver and a safety. I averaged 25 yards a catch my senior year, and that's when the University of Richmond started to knock on the door. Uh, I had a call from a couple of ACC schools, uh, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina. Uh, at the time, there was a guy who was a running back from North Carolina. I think it was Natron Means. And uh, if anybody saw a film of him in college, he was running over everybody. And so I did not want to be a linebacker or any other defender on the field trying to tackle what Mr. Natron means. <laughs> I decided to go to a smaller school, University of Richmond. Um, I became a Richmond Spider. That was one of the first programs that came to my door. Um, I really loved the coach. The defense coordinator at the time was Jim Reed. Eventually when I became a Spider, he became our head coach. Um, coach Jim Reed is now a defensive uh, coordinator for the Boston College Eagles. Um, after leaving University of Richmond, um, I get drafted in the fourth round of the NFL draft in 1998 um, by the Washington Redskins. Um, at first, I was a third down special teams linebacker. I was told I was undersized, too, a little bit too small to be an every down linebacker. 
but after making a significant impact on special teams and on third downs, um, my second year in the league, I became a starting outside linebacker. Uh, played four years with the Washington Redskins. Uh, that last year was shortened due to a knee injury. Um, I left the Redskins, went to the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, and I was there with Jim Reed. Uh, I mean, Jim Johnson was my defense coordinator. Andy Reed was the head coach. Um, one season there to kind of prove I was healthy, and then I came out to Kansas City, played with the Chiefs, Coach Dick Vermeil, um, AFC West champions in 2003. Um, again, after two seasons, faced a knee injury, shortened my second and third season here with the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, ACL on the other knee, so I went back to the Eagles after that, after reconstruction surgery of that knee. Um, 2006 season back with Philadelphia again with Coach Reed 13 and three season um, finished off that year I think we ended up going to the NFC Championship game and losing to the Saints I think that year um, and then my last year was 2007 with the Houston Texans um, and the head coach there was Coach Gary Kubiak was the coach I think that was uh, 2006 seven was the First non-losing uh, season for the Houston Texans. We went eight and eight, and uh, later on, I guess that led to Coach Kubiak leaving and going to Denver, and winning the Super Bowl with the Broncos. But um, been exposed to m- uh, so many great defensive coordinators, position coaches. Um, Ron Rivera was one of my position coaches when I was with the Eagles. Steve Spagnola was my position coach when I was with the Eagles. Um, yeah, just a phenomenal cast of different. Uh, ex-teammates and coaches that all kind of made me uh, enjoy my 10-year career. So um, feel great about uh, kind of where I'm at, at, at in life now. So, so Sean, when you were talking about in high school and, you know, some of the guys you played with and you said some of the classmates being the Sharpers, just a, there's a bevy of talent coming out of Virginia. Uh, back in that day, and I know you mentioned, uh, you know, Michael Vick, but, I mean, you, you had – I mean, just the names that always seem to come out of there are always top NFL quality players. I mean, even even who I was a fan of, he, he you know he didn't make it. They transitioned to wide receiver. Even Ronald Curry, that was out of out of the Virginia area. I think he was more Virginia Beach though, right? Yeah, that's how Water Beach area, man. We had a phenomenal, always guys uh, just pouring out of the Tidewater Water area. That Hampton, Hampton Roads area. Uh, Virginia Beach, um, Norfolk, um, all, always guys just right on the brink of either, you know, knocking down the NFL door, or, I mean, dominant uh, college players. Um, James Ferrier from the Petersburg area, I mean, he had played a number of years with the Jets and also with the Pittsburgh Steelers when I think two or three uh, world champions with the uh, Super Bowl champions with the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, he was a guy from the Petersburg area. Um, yeah, just just – it, it was kind of a hidden jewel because, like, you know, most people think that Virginia is more of a basketball school. Um, the, the programs, that, you know, UVA, uh, they, they, everybody thinks it's just a basketball state um, because of that Fork Union area and the, the prep schools. Right. Uh, in, that, in that Richmond area. So, But, no, we, we, we definitely have a class of, uh, of football players that, that uh, have, have made their own mark. Um, even with Seattle, you got uh, – uh, Robinson, the fullback for the Seahawks. Um, Russell Wilson uh, went to a school down, a collegiate high school down the street from my high school. 
um, uh, Cam Chancellor. That's from the uh, Virginia Irish. We have a we have a we have a bunch of guys even on that one team. Uh, William Henderson from the Packers. I mean, a lot of guys that played in my time, uh, all from that, that 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 Virginia area. So so Sean, so that whole Richmond area rich with talent. And so when you're in high school and you and Jamie and Darren all playing together, you know, some areas of the country, you have three football players from one town. It's, that's like ridiculous. But put three all in the same team. I mean, that's so rare. Knowing that you, now, you know, Darren and, and Jamie and yourself, were you guys that good in high school or was the talent really so good in that area that really you guys just kind of fit in with everybody else. So were you that dominant of a team? Man, well, I would say Jamie, uh, the size, the size he was in high school, he was the same size he was in high school that he was in college. So he was always, you know, six three, two twenty five. Him <laughs> and Ferrier have, have always been bigger kids throughout their high school high school career. Um, me and Darren, we were more, we were smaller kids. We were about. I was about five eleven, about one hundred and seventy five, eighty pounds when I graduated as a senior. Um, so we we had late growth spurts. So I, you know, my second and third year in college, I grew an extra inch. Um, once I had the training table and a proper weight room, um, just kind of kind of recreated my body and everything. I became a lot stronger, faster, quicker, smarter. Um, so my, my my athleticism definitely uh, catapulted after I reached the University of Richmond. Um, and I think, like you said, it just—it was so much talent at the high school level that we we were not like highly recruited by the powerhouse schools at the time. Um, like I said, no one outside the ACC uh, was really coming for us because we were undersized. But then once we got to college, uh, like I said, Darren went to Women Mary, I went to Richmond, uh, Atlantic Ten CAA conference type schools, one AA. Uh, so we had we had a lot of guys coming out that area. Uh, from that one AA area, who who started kind of knocking on the NFL, uh, letting them know that you know the the Joe Flacco's and the Brian Westbrooks of the world, Brian Finneran, Finneran brothers. There's always you know after after we came through the NFL, there was always some other guys right after us that uh, let people know that the the FCS type football, the one AA football, wasn't really that much different than the uh, power power uh, power conference footballs. So, and then when it was signed for the draft, and you were in that 98 draft, man, if we were looking back at that draft, that draft was loaded, man. Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, from a, from a linebacker standpoint, we take a lot of pride. I, I talked to Jeremiah, so me and Jeremiah was teammates of the Eagles, and we, we still think that the 90, 98 draft, we think, was hands down the best draft class for linebackers to ever come. We, we we put our draft class up against anybody. Myself, uh, Jeremiah Trotter, Brian Simmons, um, uh, the guy that played at Atlanta, um, who came out of Georgia Tech, Keith yeah, Brookins. Keith Brookins. Um, yeah, Takeo. Uh, Don't forget about my boy yeah. Takeo. Takeo Spikes, um, Greg Favors. Uh, I mean, it just just. I mean, just numerous guys, and I'm not talking about the two-year splash. I mean, it was a number of guys that played 10, 12 years. Sam Coward. Sam Coward came out of that, that oh, year yeah. as well. Coward. Florida State Buffalo Bills. Florida State Buffalo Bill, great Sam Coward. 
So yeah, this we 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 keep going back and forth trying to find another draft class that we think that from a from a linebacker standpoint um, has as many quality linebackers. And we 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 come up short every time we try to we try to find somebody. So I mean, yeah, we, I mean, I just got I just got a comment outside of linebacker. I mean, you got Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson is in that draft. Fred Taylor. Um, it's just Vonnie Holiday. I mean, Randy you got. Moss. Randy Moss was out of that draft. You got Pro Bowl, I mean, Hall of Fame caliber offensive lineman in Fanica and in uh, Burke, Matt Burke, um, that went to the Vikings. It just that just whole draft class was just incredible. Everybody talks about the '83 draft from the quarterback, but if you look at a pure talent all the way through a draft class, that '98 draft had it all over the place. And I think Dawkins was in there too, wasn't he? Oh, uh, B. Dolph went in uh, 93, uh, 94, I thought. Oh, was it? Okay. Or maybe 97. Yeah, he might have been 94, 97. I think he, been, he went to Clemson, I think, a year before. I think he actually was there. He went to the draft with uh, Sharper. The Sharper brothers both went a year before me. So I think that was the 97 draft, actually, with, with Brian Dawkins. When he went okay. Okay. So so what was it like? So now you're, you're graduating high school, or you're about to graduate high school and you're starting looking at the colleges. What, what's that like to go through a recruiting process and evaluating what school? Obviously, you know you want to play football. You want to take it to that next spot. How do you go about evaluating what college is best for Sean Barber? Man, it's such a weird, you know, it's definitely different now. It's, it's transcended through the times. It's definitely transformed a whole different uh, type of recruiting area, but when, when, back when I came out in you know 1993, it was you wanted to find a, a marriage between who wanted you and where did you want to be at. You know, so you had to be really realistic with your own abilities, uh, your passion for playing football. Did you were you playing football to get a scholarship? Were you playing football to try to get to the NFL? Um, or were you do, you know were you were you, were you doing it um, for other reasons? Um, I I entered school like I said undersized, so football was a way for me to get my school paid. I had no desire or dreams to play in the NFL. It was never that was not even on my menu at the time. And um, you know, coming out of high school, you, you have a, some schools that want to fly you in, um, that you drive up on a uh, on a visit to go to UVA, and then you drive out to Maryland. And when you're there, you're there with other kids from all over the country. Um, you go out for a night, they take you and party and hang out and all that kind of stuff. So you get to meet the coaches, you get to meet some of the uh, underclassmen who you'll play with if you, you know, sign with them. Um, and then they kind of let you know where you are in their pecking order, you know, whether they're going to offer you a, a scholarship that day or if you're one of the second-tier guys where they got they got to wait for an offer to get refused in order to give you an offer. Or then you might be a third-tier guy, which means they're going to sign everybody else and then – after they signed everybody else, if they still have a couple of scholarships, then they're going to relook at the list, and you might be one of the guys on that list. So you got to, you know, kind of marry how to, how important are you to that program, and then how how important is that college to your thoughts about where you should be. And for me, it was an easy choice because Richmond was my number one choice, and I was one of their top guys. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, it was an opportunity for me to go play with a couple of classmates because um, a wide receiver – and another guy from my high school, um, Richmond, actually offered all three of us together. Um, and they kind of let me know, hey, you, was our, you know, Sean, you're one of our top guys. And if you would come, we would definitely include these other two guys, too. And these other two guys, we had already said we wanted to play together. And um, so they wanted to keep me from, you know, going to Women Mary with Darren. They wanted to keep me from going to Delaware. 
at the time, one of the famous coach, Coach Tubbs, Billy Tubbs, I think was the coach up there in Delaware, was winning a bunch of championships with the wing T offense. Um, so they wanted to keep me off of Delaware's radar. So it was it was one of those things where it was just it was a perfect marriage for me being a, a hometown kid from Richmond. Um, they wanted me; I wanted to be there. So it was it was it was an easy decision. But the the recruiting process is completely different now, right? You, you look at you have rivals and you have all the different Under Armour and Nike camps where all these kids are getting their names on lists. Back then, it, it, you would go to camps, right? But it wasn't like it is today. So, it, it, how, how did they find you? I mean, obviously, you're in a hotbed, but how did they find you? Man, you know, so like I said, I didn't start playing football till late. So I think, you know, I, I had a, I had kind of a, everybody else had a head start. You know, everybody else's name were always already out there. So being a junior, um, you know, like I said, my junior year, I started playing free safety. And I led the district and led the, uh, I think, uh, first all-state, whatever, at, at being a safety. And I really didn't know the game of football. Um, I just made sure I was deep as the deepest. And everybody knows in high school, kids love to show off their arm. So, quote, uh, whenever it's a fade route, you can count on your hands and toes how many times a quarterback overthrows a receiver. And so after looking at that, I was just like, man, like, those are easy interceptions. If I just play deeper, uh, five or six yards deeper than most other teams, I could pick. I could take a great angle and pick these balls off. And so I ended up leading the division, uh, leading my conference in, in, in interceptions my first year playing football just based off of that one technique. I just made sure I was deep in everybody else. I was catching some interceptions like it was a punt almost. Um, and then it put my name on everybody's radar. I was first-team defense. And now coming back from my senior year, I was playing both ways. And like I said, averaging 25 yards of reception, um, that that just that highlights you. It puts you on everybody's radar. And so I was actually uh, brought to the University of Richmond to be a, a receiver. And after going to Richmond being a receiver, I, I was like fourth or fifth on the depth chart. And now I'm going into my second year of college, and they're still telling me I'm not a starter. But our entire secondary graduated. And they looked at you know some of the guys on you know on a, some ex receivers and say, hey, if any of y'all have defensive uh, backgrounds or in your history, you can you can start on defense this year, and then you can go back and be a wide receiver maybe later. And so I put my hand up and say, hey, I'll go play. I want to go play. I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to be on the bench. Uh, so I started playing cornerback that year. So that was my second year. And then my third year, I played safety. And then I was such an aggressive safety. Every time they did play action pass, it would throw bomb routes over my head. The coach said, well, if you're gonna be at the line of scrimmage, we're gonna make you a linebacker. I don't care how big you are. And so I played at just around 200 pounds. Uh, as an outside linebacker, and then came back a fifth year um, after I opened up some more eyes um, that year and was the, the, the defensive player of the conference my senior year um, on defense. That's awesome. And uh, and for the fans here, it was the Atlantic 10 Conference Defensive Player of the Year in 1997. Um, yeah. As Sean was a senior. Uh, so now you get through college. You're in the historic draft class of 1998. You start your playing career for Washington. And uh, what was that like? You know, you, you're, you get drafted, draft day, you hear your name, um, you go through the phone calls with the organization, you probably make a flight out to Washington. What, what was that experience like on draft day and then kind of going into your first training camp as a pro? Man, mine was, it was very unique because the Washington Redskins never came to any of my pro days. They didn't, um, 
they they were not on the field when I was doing my drills, my individual drills, anything like that. Um, I got selected to go to the combine. When I was at the combine, I didn't have an interview with the Redskins, so I didn't. I had no clue that, the, that I was even on the Redskins radar. Now the Redskins coaching staff was the coaching staff when I went to the Senior Bowl. Um, but the, the, my, my position coach was named Dale Lindsay, and he told me from day one that none of the coaches was here to see a guy from University of Richmond. There were guys there from Wake Forest, UVA, Louisville, Oklahoma State. That those are the guys that he was going to get reps and, and put in the game. And so basically whatever crumbs were left over, I could go out there and, 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 and eat, eat off those crumbs. And so at first, I mean, after the first couple of days of practice at the Senior Bowl, I actually told my agent I should just go home because if he's not going to give me a fair shot, I should just go home. And he said, well, you don't want to do that because that will tell everybody they'll think you're a quitter and all that kind of stuff. So I stuck through it, stuck with it. Uh, but when, I, when it came time for the game to come, he told me I was going to get the fourth quarter. Uh, I was going to split outside linebacker with another guy just for that one quarter after everybody else had played the majority of the game. And due to two injuries at the outside linebacker spot, I ended up playing the whole second half. Um, I was I led the team in tackles. I was on the cusp of being the defensive player of the game until the safety, I can't remember his name, but he was from UVA. He played the entire ball game. And on the last play, he intercepted uh, a Hail Mary, and they made that joker the player, the, the defensive <laughs> player. I was so pissed off at that. I was, I was like, this sucker, you know. Uh, but it was, it, it, it was just one of those things. Where I, just, I made the best of the opportunity, and you know, I always kind of remember what, what, he, what he said to me as a coach. And so I just, I just knew that he didn't want anything to do with me. And so when the Redskins called me, it was time for draft day to come and say, hey, you know what, we're going to take you in the fourth round. Um, I had been talking to Minnesota and Green Bay. I have been talking uh, to the Eagles. Um, and I thought those teams were going to be the ones that uh, the Bengals, were, you know, Coach, uh, the Bengals was really involved in, uh, uh, really loved me. Uh, so I just I thought, I mean, I'm going to be a third or fourth round guy to one of those teams. And so when I got on the phone with Coach Lindsey, and I was like, Coach Lindsey, let's talk about this senior bowl because it's going to eat me up. And he was like, Sean, this is what you don't realize. It's a business, okay? I know we only had we, we had a second-round pick, a third-round pick, and a fourth-round pick. And I knew in the first two picks our, our team was going to get a running back and a tight end. And I had to find a way to get me an athletic linebacker that I wanted to coach in the fourth round. He said, it was no way I was going to let you showcase your ability to beat these other teams at the senior bowl. So I, I, I hid you as much as I could without you quitting. I wow. said this cost me cost me draft picks, cost me rounds and all that just to make sure that I ended up on their team, that he had the opportunity to get me in the fourth round. But that's kinda like he said, that's the business. That's the business. And like you said, it was it was one of those was things where he was just, you know, really early on testing me to see if I was committed, you know, how much I really want to play. Uh, that I really like football, that I really enjoy football. And once he saw me through the drills for that first day, he was like, oh, I ain't going to show nobody else what skills you got. So that was that was probably one of the only times you think in football history that uh, the senior ball, senior, senior ball coaching staff hit uh, a guy's talent on an all-star game. So when you, when you get to the Redskins, you're playing with probably one of the fastest guys ever, Daryl Green. You, you had the opportunity to play with uh, some former Buffalo Bills, Marcus Patton, and then uh, a little bit later on, Bruce Smith joined the team. 
But who, who was uh who who did you bond with? Who who kind of showed you the ropes in the NFL? So as a linebacker, man, I came in and Ken Harvey. He was a senior. He, he might have been in his eighth, seventh, eighth year. He yep. was so well reserved. Well, I mean, one of the defense captains. Him and Marcus Patton. Marcus Patton was a he was a leader too. But he was he was he wasn't there as long as Ken. Uh, like you say, he came from Buffalo. Uh, Marcus was was chiseled and cut cut up. Nobody messed with Marcus. But Ken Ken Harvey was like the statesman of the defense, and so he came when I came in my first season, and it was time to get to training camp. You know they have the rookies go get this, go get coffee, go get donuts, go get candy, uh, keep a cooler full of beer, uh, any any kind of little errands and all that kind of stuff. He pulled me over to the side day one and said, "Look, Barbara, listen, we need you to play, and we need you to play at a high level." He said, "I'm not going. I'm gonna make sure that nobody messes with you. We ain't gonna have you doing all this silliness, all this foolishness these other rookies are doing." He said, but you gotta t- you gotta you gotta focus up and tell me that you gonna you know you gonna make an impact. If not, I'll I'll release you. I'll release the sharks on you. And <laughs> I took that as as a challenge. I was okay. So I'll learn my playbook. Make sure I know what I'm doing. Uh, my, like I said, I was impactful my first year on all the phases of special teams and on third down. Uh, there was a guy in front of me from Nebraska named Jamal Williams, um, a second round draft pick who they drafted just a year ago, who was playing the same position they wanted me to play. And so when the challenge was for me to take his position, it was like whichever one of y'all know your position the best, who makes the less mistakes, you're both great athletes. Um, you know, we, we got a second-round draft pick invested in Jamal. We, you're a fourth-round draft pick, so if if it's even, uh, Barbara, you're going to lose that battle because we got more, uh, in, you know, equity uh, involved in Jamal. So I know I had to I had to make it, you know, clear and cut that I was a better choice to play that position than him and beat him out of that position. Um, you talk about uh, uh, when I had the opportunity to play with uh, Bruce Smith. Uh, Bruce was the guy, when he got to the Redskins, uh, he was only a few sacks away from a, a record. So it was kind of hard to get him to be as disciplined a, a, a football player as needed sometimes uh, when we're running stunts and gaps and stuff. Uh, we have some run stunts we want him to run, and he's playing pass every down to make sure he gets his <laughs> sack record. So, my, my 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 memory of playing behind Bruce Smith is probably is not as good as uh, the Daryl Tallies or the whoever the uh, the Sam Cowards, the, the linebackers that really played with him when he was uh, playing all downs equally as uh, as sound as he was uh, early in his career. But uh, and also, like you say, Bruce Smith is a Virginia Tech guy from uh, Virginia area also. So yeah, uh, yeah, I have an opportunity to play with those guys: uh, Deion Sanders, Champ Bailey. Uh, you know, uh, Skip Hicks, um, man, uh, just, just a number of guys, Trent Green, uh, Michael Westbrook, and just, just a number of guys throughout the organization. My my best friend from the Red Redskins days is Kennard Lang. Kennard Lang was a defensive end from the University of Miami, first-round draft pick. Um, I think he probably came out uh, a year before that. I think he was the Redskins' first-round draft pick in 97, I guess. Uh, but he came from the U. Um, he spoke it, he talked it, walked the walk. Uh, was one of the big dogs on campus, always a uh, bigger-than-life personality. Uh, also also a great dude, great friend. Uh, and it was, just, it was cool bonding with those guys. Me and his dad, uh, my father and his father actually played together and were teammates at Florida A&M uh, uh, back in the day. Um, so it, it was cool. We had that, uh, we had a bond already. Um, from our dads before we even touched the uh, Redskins field together. 
So there, I got two things uh, with the Redskins because you mentioned his name and he's always been one of my favorites. Primetime, uh, Deion Sanders. What was it like being a teammate uh, with Deion Sanders? Deion Sanders is a great. I mean, he's 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 a better teammate than a, any persona you ever seen of him. Primetime, Showtime, all, you know, all, all the the glamour, glitz, and everything. He lets he lets his teammates see who he really is. But he lets you know, hey, man, like the prime time, I'm going to be living prime time and, and, and relying on prime time to pay my bills for my lifetime. I can only do this. I'm your teammate this this season. I'm your teammate. Next season, either I'm gone, you gone, but we might not be teammates. We're going to still be friends. But my prime time persona is what I'm investing in to to, to, to be a, a, a relevant personality way beyond my playing career. So he made us realize what it, what it was, was to let your business be your business. When you talk about making business decisions, uh, when the cameras came into the locker room, that smile became 24-karat gold. That, that, that persona, that primetime bandana dancing around and uh, the, 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 the boyish, uh, loud, and, and bigger-than-life personality, he would stop in the middle of a conversation with you to turn on prime time if those cameras was around because that was that was his lifestyle. He 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 was he created that 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 alter ego, um, and he was he knew he knew he had gold right there. He knew that all he had to do was keep living it up, keep talking his talk, walking his walk. His skills was gonna back up. He couldn't write a check big enough that his skills wouldn't go on cash, and so he had no no obviously no lack of confidence. Um, but he he knew he had he he had a, a, a gold mine when it came to the prime time personality. But when it was teammate to teammate, he was just as real as, as, as anybody. He was just as real about uh, truth, honesty, love of the Lord, um, what it means to be dedicated and, you know, be uh, professional about your craft and businessman, all that kind of stuff. He was just, just as real with somebody as D. Green was. So what was it like, you know, as, as fans uh, of teams, you hear a lot about Daniel Snyder, and in his early in his early life as owner of the Redskins, he was what we call in the fan world. He was a little out there, right? And maybe drove some of the fan bases a little crazy early on in his tenure as owner. Um, what was like? What was it like playing for for Dan Snyder? As a as a player, I think we, we want to have our coaches back, and we want our coaches to feel like they got the the power and the authority to, to coach to the best of their abilities that give us the best chance of winning. And when you have a owner come in like Dan Snyder who starts landing helicopters on your practice field and waiting for the coach right at the locker room after the game is over, pulling the coach to the side before the coach can even address the team, like those things always undercut a coach's authority. They undercut their his respect level. And when you're in front of a group of grown men, and we all have like an alpha dog mentality. We need the head coach to have that same alpha dog mentality. And what Dan Snyder didn't realize is he wanted he wanted the coach to answer to him, and didn't realize every time the coach answered to him, he he fell down a rung in the eyes of the players to the point where at the end of the the season uh, we had no respect for him because we knew that he 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 wasn't even coaching how he felt like he should coach. He was coaching. Uh, in order to check all the boxes and cross all the T's and dot all the I's for the owner, for Dan Snyder, instead of really doing what was needed for the team to be successful. Um, 
whether it was going for it on fourth down, kicking a field goal, who to start at quarterback, uh, which players, to, what package needs to play. Are we going to feature the run with Skip Hicks? Are we going to uh, Stephen Davis? Are we going to feature the pass with Michael Westbrook and Albert Connell? All those things were being directly uh, relayed in, in, in like a puppet master by the uh, Dan Snyder once he came into the organization. And that just took away all the credibility of the coach. And it was it was tough to play for an organization or a head coach that you felt like was being uh, manipulated by the owner. So, Sean, you know, and, you know, as you think about the, the early days of Dan Snyder, I, I think over the years he's learned – I think he's matured his ability to run the team or the way that he the way that he runs the team from an owner perspective. I, I definitely think that back then he was in awe of Jerry Jones and the way that Jerry came in and just, you know, wrecked shop at Dallas, right? Um, the hiring, the firing and everything else. But as we look at it present day, the way that the game has changed and you start seeing some of the the way that the owners are are in today's game, it, it's a little different, right? Uh, except for Jerry. <laughs> I think Jerry is still probably the only hands-on owner in the league. Jerry is still in Jerry's world, right? Jerry, even, even when Coach Jimmy Johnson won him a championship, he wasn't satisfied because Jimmy Johnson was getting too much credit for it. Jerry Jones would have never been happy. He, Jerry Jones could have, he, he could have, he could be sitting on five, six rings, like the Patriots, in, in, in control of a dynasty, and he would find a way to mess it up. Because if you didn't put his name behind the five championships, like, you know, you know, Gillette Stadium in New England, everybody puts those, the, the, the dynasty with Brady and Belichick. And then you give the owner and his family the respect for placing those guys in their positions and then allowing them to do their job. That's the beauty of, of that organization is they feel like the ownership, they don't, they don't mess with Bill Belichick. They don't mess with Tom. But they, let, they let Tom be Tom. They let Bill be Bill. And they've won a whole bunch of ball games over the last decade and a half. Uh, excuse me, Sean. Sean, I just want to let you know that Steve and I, we do not recognize the Patriots as being any type of champions. Uh, they have been found guilty of cheating and dishonesty within the league. And plus, they they have ruined our our division of the AFC East. Just putting I, that out there. Yeah, I agree with everything he said. Oh man, well you know, hey, facts are facts. Uh, <laughs> <you> like, <laughs> the, the the New England dynasty is what it is. Uh, uh, the, you know, it's tough being a Jets fan or Bill fans because y'all had to play such a good team twice a year. Where everybody said everybody said playing them only once, or even every four years. Exactly. Yeah, that sucks to be you a little bit, but <laughs> so like I said, Jerry, Jerry Jones just uh, he 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 wields his power openly, and he lets everybody know that you know he's calling the shots. Uh, he wants everybody to know that you know the, you know if his head coach is going to answer to him, and even at the sake of of not winning, uh, I think he would he sleeps better at night having a coach that answers to him than if 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 he had a strong head coach like a Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, uh, Bill Belichick, uh, Andy Reid. If he was had one of those coaches where um, if he had to call those coaches and they didn't feel like they needed to answer his call, that would drive him crazy. He couldn't sleep at night knowing that uh, he couldn't get his answers answered in, a, in you know immediately 
uh, by guys he hired to be the you know head coach and general manager. So Sean, you you saw the game on Monday? I I watched it from about three different locations. Um, we have a we have a, a, a deal here in Kansas City called Chicken and Pickle pickleball and they have great food, chicken, beer, and everything. So uh, up in northern Kansas City, it's a new organization that started this chicken and pickle thing. So they was having a watch party. Uh, insurance group, Kansas City Insurance Group, uh, KCIG, they were having a uh, watch party at Talk of the Town. So Talk of the Town out here was a big, uh, big restaurant, French sports bars and stuff. So they was having a watch party. Um, a couple of hotels were having. So I, I went to like four or five different watch parties. Spent about a half a quarter at each one. Um, I saw enough of the game to know exactly what happened. Um, I know the referees were this all star, and this all star means horrible. The uh, the all star technique of calling of getting the refs together uh, was a was a tragic fail for the NFL. Um, I do believe that you know them moving the. The game originally from Mexico City back to Los Angeles was a positive for uh, the NFL, for the players. Um, even for Mexico City in the long run, I think it's going to be a positive because if if if, if, the, field, if the if the game happened there and somebody, God forbid, got hurt because of the field condition, it would have ended the relationship forever. It would have been it would it would have been no more. Um, but having uh, I got smarter minds prevail and say, hey, we can move this one game and still keep the relationship. Um, just have a, you know, uh, understanding of what our expectation of the field to be to have a game going forward, um, and to have that be, you know, the bar is now set of what it should be. Um, I think that that leaves the window open for, you know, future venues, future games to be uh, the partnership to still be alive. And that game ended up being, I mean, uh, you know, for 105 points, total points between two of the top, uh, I think, top four offenses in the league. Um, definitely, you know, two of, the, two of the top three teams in the league going head-to-head, back and forth, defensive touchdowns, uh, big plays, sack fumbles, uh, pick sixes. Uh, you saw every, everything, all the, all the ways except for a special team score. Um, it gave you everything you wanted in the ball game. So let me ask you, Sean. What if you, what were your takeaways from the game? So you you watched the game. You you saw the the points, the defensive touchdowns, the high flying offenses. Is what what are some of your takeaways from from the chief for the Chiefs? And what are some of your takeaways from the Rams? What did you see in the Rams um, that could look at them as representing the NFC in the Super Bowl? Well, I mean, the Rams kind of confirmed everything you thought before. Uh, the one thing I did learn is they can win the game without Gurley being a a super impactful part of the offense. They can still score, um, and even with Cooper Cup being out. And so I was a little concerned, you know, with Cooper Cup being out, who was going to be their third wide out? And instead of having a third wide out, they kind of replaced them with two tight ends. So the, the, the emergence of Everett from the tight end position, he's basically just a big wide out anyway. Um, I think he went to, like, South Carolina State or something like that. He got drafted about two years ago. So he's a young, upcoming, uh, you know, that that, that uh, flex tight end slash big receiver type body. Um, but not having to overuse Gurley and still being uh, effective enough to put up that many points. Um, Aaron Donald is a legitimate MVP candidate. Um from the interior position to be that kind of impactful player, from the you 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 have the ability to get double team on every play. 
uh, outside edge guys, Devon Miller is the the, the max. Um, they they know when a chip is there. They know when they're right off the gun. They're one on one. They know when they are, you know free access to the edge. But coming from a, a interior a three or five or zero technique, coming from one of those between the guard techniques, it's always a, a, a possibility that the offense can find you know multiple ways to double team you. And for him to still be that effective and that impactful, not just with sacks but turnovers. Um, and you know it's coming. You know who he is before the game starts. You identify him, and you still can't stop him. To me, that's what an MVP does on the defensive side of the ball. You're able to inflict your will on another opponent, even when they know you know it's coming. And for the Chiefs, um, you know it was, it was interesting. You know it, it's it's the it's the uh, christening. This is still the 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 the, the Cinderella story for Patrick Mahomes. Um, he was this you know, perennial. Uh, threw the ball for a thousand yards a game, you know, in the spread offense. How would that correlate to the NFL? Uh, we've seen many guys, uh, Boise State from Oklahoma. Oklahoma we've seen uh, the Whipples and the Hypels and uh, all these other quarterbacks from Big Twelve. You know, not many successful quarterbacks come from the Big Twelve that have thrown the ball for all these yardage, and then they get to the NFL and, and they realize, you know, well, we got to get, you got to come from under center. You got to be able to read coverages. We don't have we don't put cards up in the air to tell you where to throw the ball in the NFL. Uh, we don't do the pitchers, the little four squares, and all that kind of stuff. You got to be able to call a play. You got to be able to recognize a defense, deliver a ball, and sometimes take a hit. And in the first year, Pat Mahomes is showing he does all of those things at a very high level. He's doing that. I mean, the only people that you can say in the in in this year who's not doing it as well as him or who's doing it as well as him is Drew Brees. Drew Brees is doing uh, at a higher click with a higher success rate. I think someone says Drew Brees is throwing like 70% completion rate um, and, and has almost as many touchdowns with only one interception. Right. So, I, yeah, I think Drew is closer to 80. Um, I think that's the record he's going for. That's what he shot for in spring tra- in training camp. He said he wanted to complete 80% of his passes. Yeah, so he, I mean, he's, to, to, be able to, to be able to call it out and then back it up during the season – uh, when the bullets are alive, when the tacklers are alive, I mean that, that just shows he has such a great grasp of Sean Payton's offense that he knows, you know, hey, I can go from one to two to check down, or because of the defense the way it is, I know two ain't gonna be there, so I can go one to three, or I know because of the way this is set up, I don't even gotta start at one. They already taken away number one, so I can go go ahead and just go to the third option, look off, and let Kamara. Uh, eat him up from the screen game. Like it, it, he, he has such great command of the offense, and it's, and it's, it's such a high-powered offense to have command of. It's just a beautiful thing to see what happens when um, offensive mind, great offensive minds uh, marry up with great quarterbacks and a great set of skilled players. That's what happens when you get a 40-point-a-game um, offense going. I have to tell you guys, I hated the game. I, it, it was a love-hate for the game, because what that game signified to me was a change in the NFL as we knew it. I think, and Sean, I'd love to have your take on this. The the new rules that they have implemented in the league, uh, especially, they're all offensively based to help the offense. You could see it almost grow 
until we got to this game, this was a kind of a culmination because from a defensive perspective, and you being a defensive guy, help me out here, there's, you're, you're limited as far as sometimes your ability to be aggressive. And so now you're kind of, you're already playing in a reactive type mode. Now it, it's amplified because you cannot be as aggressive, as forceful as you were in the past. Yeah. And so, I mean, you look at, you look at safeties and you talk about some of the great safeties and you talk about the, the, the difference between an Ed Reed and a Brian Dawkins. One was an ultimate intimidator. Um, if you remember the hit Brian Dawkins had on Algie Crumpler. Um, oh, that, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, felt like he disintegrated Crumpler on that seam route. Um, and then you think about some of the great uh, instinctive plays that Ed Reed has made, um, how, how graceful he was on the back end to be able to contort his body um, and make such great, you know, once he got the ball in his hand, I mean, it was always a uh, 50-50 chance he was going to take it back for six points. Um, but, you know, it just, like, to me, Ed Reed becomes the player that could have played in any time frame because he's so athletic and such a playmaker, um, as opposed to Brian Dawkins, who, um, as great as he was, because his greatness had something to do with the fear he, 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 he invoked in other players, um, he made the offense doubt whether they could run certain routes. Uh, because they had to make sure that guy lasts the whole season. They didn't want to get guys hurt, so you could you had to eliminate certain routes against Brian Dawkins. Uh, you're not running no 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 deep overs and no uh, tight end seam routes, uh, and and not worry about that guy not getting up. Um, so that, that that safety is not going to be a a factor anymore in the new NFL. Um, and that and that's you know the, the Cam Chancellors, the Earl Thomases, the even here with Kansas City, the uh, Eric Berries. Um, you know, Johnny Lynch, John Lynch, um, some of the great safeties would not be, uh, not, not that they couldn't evolve to be more playmakers, more heads-up type guys, but the uh, the legacy they left at the safety position was because uh, they were such an intimidating force. Uh, myself as a linebacker, I think that I, I always consider myself an athlete. And I, I, I would say, man, I, like, listen, I play within the rules of the game. Uh, I, I hit some people with some with, with some intimidation um, at times to create a certain uh, hey I just need you to know I'm here. Uh, but I always was more of a ball hawk. I was always more interested in getting the ball out, turning it over, getting an interception, um, strip sack, strip fumble. Like I was always interested in getting the ball back more so than making a big hit. Um, and I think that's the that's the mentality that guys just need to start grasping. That's what the NFL wants more of. We, we, they want turnovers. They want uh, plays to be made that way rather than having guys lay on the ground after a big hit. Is this all direct related to, you know, the lawsuit against the NFL? Do you think that's part of why they want to change that? Oh, definitely. 100% it has to be. I mean, it, 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 the NFL is a, it's a machine. It's a train. It's going. It's, it, it's been creating more and more revenue every year exponentially, getting bigger, badder, stronger. It's been the number one sport in America uh, for two, three decades. And it's, just, it, it's, 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 it's pulling away from the other sports. The other sports can't even catch up with it. Um, and when that concussion era hit, that four or five seasons where the NFL had to deal with uh, former players suing the NFL, and uh, you had parents 
um, considering for the first time whether they were going to let their sons even play Little League football. The, the, the first time the, the numbers started to dip in Little League football being uh, attended or being participated in, the participation numbers going down, that was the sign when the NFL knew they had a problem. It wasn't about players suing them as much as they knew that that next crop of fans, uh, players, when that number starts to head and it starts to trend down, then they see that they're not worried about the TV deal this year. They're worrying about that TV deal 15 years from now because that deal this year is $5 billion, but they know 15 years from now they're looking at a $20 billion deal. And that's the, uh, uh, that's the pool of money they're trying to protect. Sean, fascinating take to from your perspective. When you look at the NFL, and this is where they have people called them out for being guilty of this, is that when you look at their promotional videos, when you look at, you know, when they try to highlight the game itself, you're always seeing these guys that are getting laid out across the middle. They're always showing you the Ronnie Lotts. They're always showing you the Steve Atwaters, the Aeneas Williams, the John Lynches. You know, they're showing you those guys, the Brian Dawkins. And that's how they try to hype it up because that was the allure of the game. You know, such a violent, fast-paced, violent, where these guys would take the hit and get back up. Or or in rare cases, they would show you the, the hit of Don Beebe laying on the sideline. Yeah. It's like, you know, hey, we all know the gladiator mentality. Um, they have to build up this persona of a football player being bigger than life, tougher than life. Mm-hmm. Um, adrenaline junkie they will lay life and limb on the line to make this one catch for this one yard to get this one touchdown in pursuit of this one championship that and sounds like any given Sunday <laughs> they have to sell that image all the time because if not once it becomes the sport that anybody could do and it's just a you know a bunch of guys not willing to, to, to do that you know, that's the image it doesn't matter if, if during the season you you don't see those hits no more. They can still go back to the NFL archives and show those big hits to, 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 to make you remember uh, where were you at when Joe Thasman broke his leg? Where were you at when, uh, when, when, when Ronnie Lott high-stepping into the end zone, when Jerry Rice uh, and the 49ers uh, scored 40 points on the Chargers by halftime? I mean, you know, the, these, these, these great images that we all have of, of, of the pinnacle of the NFL um, and they kind of sell you on that's you know every any 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 Sunday you can see the next page of that any you know and I think that's why this game this past Monday night was so special is because it it, it gives people a whole nother image of what the new NFL could be high scoring fast pace big plays on defense um, and and they they're saying this is that's the future of the you know, that's the future. Your team could be the next Chiefs, the next Rams, the next Saints. You're one quarterback away um, from from being this team. And every year you see in the draft, uh, teams will they'll, they'll sell their future and their soul and everything else to get that highly prized quarterback, that gunslinger, that 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 you know that franchise quarterback is that that elusive player that is the difference between being a you know, uh, two and fourteen team and fourteen and two team. If we have that guy, everything can be all right. And the NFL can sell that over and over again. It, it, it re-energizes the fan base every time your team drafts a quarterback. Uh, unless his name is Nate Peterman. Uh, Come on, man! 
Come on, man. You got to take it easy on my boy, Nate. I had to throw that in there once I started to think about these recent quarterbacks. Um, you know, Sam, Sam Donaldson, he's the, he's the next kind he's the, he's the guy. You know, he's the, he's the guy that they're going to say. I mean, he should be, uh, you know, doing the same things that you see, you know, Jared Goff and Pat Mahomes doing. You know, they, that's, that's the expectation level now. Hey, if the guy gets in, he has the arm, he has the talent, we got the coaching staff, we can – uh, you see what uh, Chicago has done with, 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 with Trubisky. They got Nagy there. Nagy takes this guy who's a, you know, fault. Yeah, you know, they're not knowing what, you know, the Bears are good defense, but offensively they're just sputtering along. And uh, Nagy, a, a protege off of the Andy Reid tree, comes in and starts to turn the wheels on that Andy Reid offense um, and recreates it in Chicago. And now Trubisky, you know, four touchdowns, five touchdowns, Tariq Cohen, you know, multiple touchdown games, Howard, you know, uh, they're just finding so many different weapons where these guys were already on the team and just they they just wasn't being used to their full potential. So you realize how invaluable, how valuable that that, that quarterback guru, head coach, um, if you have that guy in the building, um, they can, you know, take 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 some lemons and make, make some really, really good lemonade. So quite possibly we could start to see a shift when you start looking at the head coaches and starting to dip into the college ranks and really starting to pull those college coaches out. Like Lincoln Riley's been been mentioned as far as making that jump. Just because in the college game you see a lot of the spread offense wide open, you know, throwing the ball around geared more towards the offense. Yeah, I'm be honest. I don't even know who the defensive coordinator for the Saints are. Like, I know Bob Sutton is for the Chiefs. I know Wade Phillips because of Bumfield. I know Wade Phillips is for the Rams. But I don't even know who the defense corner is for the Saints right now. Like, I know, you know, Greg Williams was it for a while, but I don't know who it is anymore. And it's, and almost, it doesn't even matter because they're scoring at such a high rate. They only need you, they need you to create a turnover, uh, maybe two or three sacks a game, get you to punt twice instead of giving up a touchdown, (laughs) make you, you know, kick a field goal. In five possessions, if they can get you to turn it over, punt, or kick a field goal, you lose to the Saints. So that's the easiest formula of defense ever. So, so you're saying just really just stack the offense and just hope your defense makes a, a stop or two? A stop or that, I mean, that's the, that's, that's, that's the new NFL. That's the new NFL. Jacksonville Jaguars was, was labeled to be this vaunted great defense from last year. They come in and they – they can't stop it. They can't. They the, the way the rules are now, even the greatest defenses can't stop people. Um, the Rams put together this all-star defense to go with the all-star offense, and they're they're giving up for you know giving it up to uh, almost everybody. Um, you know the two the two defenses that are pretty good this year is the Chicago Bears and the Ravens, uh, but they're not immune to you know having an off night where they gave up you know whatever thirty-eight points to the Bengals or. Um, the Bears. Uh, Sean, did you forget about the team from Western New York? Who? Who? The number one ranked defense in the NFL right now. That's the number one ranked defense in the NFL. It is. With all the points they give up. Since then, they are the number one ranked defense in not getting the look. Sean, I may have to go on my Al Michaels rant against you. Man, we, we're gonna have to fact check this. That this. Yeah, this tell me not... this, Are you talking about Sean McDermott's defense? Is it we talking about the Buffalo Bills? We are. Well, the fact. All right. 
the 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 reason that you might be, I'm not going to say you are or not ranked the number one defense, is when the other team knows they only need 14 points. <laughs> And they have no, they have no even fear that any quarterback he put behind center, uh, is gonna put up more than 14 points a game. They, they realize like, I mean, it, it, I mean, what's the use of beating you 44 to 12 or 14 to 12? It's like. 12? Once they, once they put up 17 points on the game, it's like, it's over. Let's just run the ball out. We know they're not gonna get across the 50. So, just now, I mean, I, and I love Coach McDermott. McDermott is one of my, like he 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 played at Women Mary when I played at Richmond. He was Darren's uh, say he was the other safety with Darren. Him and Darren were both safeties for four seasons together. Um, he was there when Tomlin was there as a wide receiver. So Tomlin was the wide receiver. Coach Sean McDermott was a uh, safety. Um, so they 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 all are kind of from that from a from a very hardcore type uh, defensive mentality. Uh, but it's just, and I think that's the trend you're gonna see. You're not gonna see defensive coordinators get head coaching jobs no more. You're gonna see, I mean, young like Eric Bieniemy, right? He's gonna be the next. Um, who's the quarterback coach here with the Chiefs now? Um, used to be the uh, quarterback at Northwestern. Um, well, he's our quarterback coach now. He's he's been whispered about as being next offensive coordinator after being a quarterback coach for two seasons. Um, these offensive, you know, if you've dealt with golf, Drew Brees, if you're part of one of their offenses as a coordinator or a quarterback coach, you're on the trending up fast track to head coaching job. Everybody wants some semblance of what's working, what's scoring 35 points a game in the NFL. So you're saying my New York Jets have no chance. Is that what you're telling me? Unless they hire Eric Bieniemy, <laughs> I'm just checking. Uh, I'm just trying to check my expectations here. Uh, Sean McVay is the offense coordinator, so he's the head coach and offense coordinator. So whoever's the the quarterback coach at the Rams, uh, whoever's the quarterback coach at the Saints, um, you know, cause I think the head coach is the offense coordinator for the Rams and the Saints. Um, so those, yeah, those guys are. They're going to be hand-picked. They're going to be picked off and say, hey, bring, like, the same thing that Nagy did for the Bears. Do it for us. Bring the, bring the offense with you. Bring, we, going, we, want you, we want you, but we really want your offense, and we're just going to bring you along with you to get the offense. But whatever we got to do to get some semblance of that, uh, because it's been, you know, it's been transported and it works. Uh, uh, at the Eagles, right, Doug Peterson. So for the last, you know, two years we've had – Two coordinators from the from the from under Andy go to teams and become very successful, very fast. One win in the Super Bowl. Bears are now leading the NFC North. Um, the Chiefs are leading the AFC West, and all of them are basically doing the same a variation of the same stuff. So there's one pressing question that I have, and we were talking about the Chiefs, and as you talk about the Chiefs, what do you think the Chiefs' chances are at getting Le'Veon Bell? You know what? It's such a good question. You came up with that. I have been one person who, I, like, like I, I've been, I've been, I've been saying it quietly to people because I feel like if I say it too loud, it's like me letting the cat out of the bag. But I, I for one, like, I almost feel like it's a, it's pointless to spend money on defensive players now. Like, I don't, I don't think you need to spend the the fourteen million dollars on a safety or the ten million dollars on. Uh, D Ford or 
uh, $14 million on Houston. I mean, if you can accumulate enough offensive weapons and then you can constantly draft young players to be, you know, tremendous edge rushers, you get young, young uh, aggressive cornerbacks with playmaking abilities, with ball skills, they're going to get a couple turnovers. They're going to get a couple overthrows. I don't, I don't think I need all-pro, all-star defenders anymore because, like I said, I really only need five plays. I need a turnover. I need a, uh, them to punt two times. And then, and then I just need some field goals given away instead of touchdowns. So you can let them drive the whole field and then just on two possessions make them kick a field goal instead of touchdowns. So, and I think if you take a if, – if the Chiefs was to add Le'Veon Bell to the backfield they already have, you got Hunt and Le'Veon Bell on one side or the other. Tyreek Hill taking the top off the, the, the defense. Um, uh, Travis Kelsey keeping those safeties honest. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see how with Hunt, Hill, Kelsey, and now you add Le'Veon Bell to the, to, to the mix – I think the the scoring rate right now for the Chiefs, I think it's somewhere around 55% they score either a touchdown or a field goal. I think that would go up to about 65 to 70% of every of possessions in a game where they score a touchdown or a field goal. And that would put them at about 42 points a game. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I need any defensive all-stars on my defense uh, to win when I'm scoring 42 points a game. Well, so that is a great – I I don't disagree there, but you can't have Le'Veon Bell in in Kansas City. It just, it, it just can't <laughs> oh, happen. I, I feel oh, like, here we go. I, I feel like I've been set up here. Oh. somehow. I've been set up here. Le'Veon <laughs> Bell is going to the New York Jets. Okay, he grew up a Jets fan. He went to college oh, no. with green in the colors. It is all set up for him to come on home. The He's green was for home. money. That's no. all it was for. The green was for money. No, no, the green is for the New York Jets, and he's coming home. So well, you, can... I know, Jets definitely have more cap space than the Eagles. He, I mean, uh, Chiefs don't have enough cap space to offer him as lucrative deal as you want. But I would, I would, I would start chopping that right after the season was over. I would start chopping off big, co- big contracts to let Le'Veon Bell know if I can somehow put together enough money to get you to come here for like three years. We will, we would definitely win two of the three Super Bowls if you had Le'Veon Bell to this offense. Well, he is a dynamic player. That that is for sure. And I I couldn't agree in, anymore with you on the offensive side with Le'Veon Bell. It just it just Le'Veon Bell in Kansas City. It just it doesn't ring for me real, real well. Um, but uh, uh, with with that. O J E T S. Glad you just in the season. Come on, man. What do you got to do that for? It's this year. We're just ending the season, but we'll be back next year. Um, so, Sean, what 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 are you doing these days? Past post football. I'm so in living in Kansas City, man. I got a beautiful wife of 14, about to be 15 years. We have six kids. My oldest is uh, playing high school football as a cornerback. My second son actually plays with with, uh, with uh, Steve's son, uh, traveling the ABA showcase team. Um, shout out to them. Just came in second place at a showcase down in Grapevine, Texas. Awesome trip, part of a tournament down there. I have a, a competitive dancer as a daughter who's part of a dance company here in Kansas City, Jody Phillips Dance. And then I have three young sons who have no idea what they want to do but be rambunctious and get into everything, and I love it. And I chase them around. I encourage them to be bold and courageous. 
Um, the only thing they got to do is love the Lord, love their mama, uh, and and I'll be cool with it. And so we uh, we sent them to um, some devout Christian schools to learn um, about Christ and give them a Christ-based education. Um, I do a lot of stuff with the alumni here in Kansas City. We call ourselves the Kansas City Ambassadors. Uh, we make a great impactful imprint here in the community as far as uh, with the urban community, with uh, uh, doing hospital visits for kids and people who are overcoming cancer. Um, we have partnerships with Big Brother, Big, Big, Brother, Big Sister, uh, United Way, um, uh, area, a place here called Camp Quality that deals with families that are kind of being um, putting too much of a financial burden being put on them because their kids are coming through some type of uh, medical procedure, so we help them out. Um, just in so many different areas, we're just trying to be, um, you know, broaden the footprint, being uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, the organization here, the, the what Mark Donovan has done with the Chiefs has made this a, a family. Uh, the organization, the community is all just part of one big family. They call it the kingdom. And no matter if you're a fan, a player, front office staff, a sponsorship partner, um, if, you're, if you're within reach of this uh, of the kingdom, then if you're going through a problem, whatever, you let us know. We, we, we're going to try to be to help you, help you work through it. Um, we're trying to all raise our hopes and joys and the, the amount of excitement we have about the Kansas City Chiefs, but we'll find a way to relate that to life. And as an alumni, um, I try to go speak. I do, I do um, motivational speaking engagements to military groups, um, dealing with um, post-traumatic syndrome. Um, I do. Uh, uh, I just did a camp with Will Shields at his uh, 68 Sports, kind of a train like a chief fantasy camp. We had a group of people from Community America come out, and I trained them how to be an NFL linebacker for the day. Um, it's, just, it's so many opportunities to be impactful, um, not only to adults, but also to the next um, generation of young adults and movers and shakers that are coming along. And I think that's just my, 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 my purpose and my passion in life is to uh, help people create a better tomorrow by using my skills today. So uh, that's kind of what, I guess, what I do on a day-to-day. Excellent, excellent. Hey, before we let you go, we do a thing called Quick Hits with, with our guests. And, uh, and so it's just some fun questions for you that we wanted to uh, get out there. Folks know a little bit more about you. And so right. if you're okay with that, I'm just going to go fire away. Go for it. All right. So who was, who was, who is, or who was the biggest influence in your life? Who is or was my mother? Uh, my mother is one of 13 big family out of Charlottesville, Virginia, old country girl. Um, she's a teacher and educator. She taught me the value of information, about knowledge, about wisdom. Um, information is knowledge, but until you learn how to apply it, you'll never understand the wisdom behind it. Um, she taught me how patience is a virtue. Um, tell me to pray for peace but prepare for war. All the things that have guided me through my life, um, I learned from my mom. My dad was a little bit of a uh, 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 he was a little bit of a military. Uh, militant type uh, 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 person, so he, he definitely taught me the discipline, the hard work, the effort, um, some more of the physical tools I needed to, uh, you know, maintain and become successful in the NFL, and also to how to carry those things over to the real life as far as being a father and a husband um, and being a, just an impactful uh, person in the community. So uh, my mom is definitely the alpha 
uh, impact in my life, but I got to give some, some, some a little shout out to my my pops too for uh, teaching me some more of the physical things that needed. Excellent. So um, next one, what coach meant the most to you in your career? I'm gonna say Coach Jim Reed. Uh, he's the first guy that saw the talent in me. Uh, he saw, you know, he said he saw a gleam in my eye. Uh, when he came to uh, came to my house as a young man, I don't know if that was a recruiting tactic or did he really see it, but um, he kind of put me under his wing, and it wasn't about football; it was about life. Um, you know, he taught me. You know, he taught me a lot about life. He told me just uh, kind of at some point in that time, you gotta, you know, if you say you're gonna be somewhere, you gotta kind of be a man in your word. You gotta, uh, when it comes to leadership, um, you gotta lead people with uh, with pride. You got to be proud of who you are in order to have other people be proud of who they are. Um, leading by example, um, kind of walking by faith, not by sight. Um, just so many different um, just this teaching moments, uh, the really really impactful points in my life. Um, I learned at an early age in college, and I think that allowed me to uh, avoid a lot of the pitfalls that some athletes go through when they get to the NFL, when the money starts coming in, uh, and all the attention they're starting to get. Um, I'd already had a sense of how to avoid uh, the negative and the, 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 the fakeness and the uh, you know some of some of the, the false attention, the false narratives. Um, I didn't I didn't let that shape my world. Um, I, I kind of was able to put all that stuff in a proper proper perspective based off of what I learned from Coach Reed. Excellent. All right, some easy ones now. Some easy ones. So it's late night. Everybody's asleep. What's your favorite snack that you go eat? Oh, I'm an ice cream guy. I, I, I give me a bowl of ice cream. Um, I like I like the new gel, the, the gelato type ice cream, a little right. fancy gelato. Um, any kind of cookies and cream or pralines or caramel. Um, I'm a sucker for peanut butter, but my, I got a, my one of my kids got a peanut butter allergy, so I got to hide all the peanut butter everything. So yeah, if I got a little little secret indulgence one night, it's gonna be uh, some type of ice cream with some, 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 some peanut butter drizzled on it. Oh, that's that's good stuff right, right there. So now, as you're eating your ice cream, what's your favorite movie you like to eat ice cream to? The favorite movie of all time, I have no doubt about it, is Armageddon with Bruce Willis. Great okay, flick. That's, 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 the, that's the best movie of all time. There is no close second. Uh, none of the, the uh, um, none of the mafia movies, none of the Godfathers, none of the uh, uh, the, the the Gambinos, none, none none of those things even come. None of the Rockies. You know uh, that that hurts me about the Gambinos. I'm just gonna say as a as a problem. Yeah, none of those. Those, none of that. None of that stuff even comes close to Armageddon. All right. You're killing me with that answer. <laughs> hey, you, you're killing well, me. You, you wanted me to say 300. You want no, me to I, I was ex expecting oh, Godfather. Or, Godfather 2, Scarface, Untouchables, Goodfellas, Boys in the Hood, Friday, something. Armageddon, buddy. Okay? All right. So, uh, favorite actor or actress? Who is your favorite? favorite actor would probably have to be, I mean, you know what? I, I kind of, I, I, I already said it's Bruce Willis because, you know, the diehards, uh, obviously, the Armageddon's. I mean, Bruce Willis to me just been in my lifetime uh, one of the most consummate, uh, best actors. Um, not, not to take anything away from a man, Denzel Washington, because Denzel has been uh, the, the 
captain on the on the, on the airplane that flew it upside down, and also been <laughs> original gangster. Uh, you know, my man, my man. When he tell you that, you know your life is short. Uh, King Kong doesn't have anything out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. King Kong definitely don't have anything on on my man Denzel. So how about uh, actress? Queen Denzel and Bruce Willis. And how about actress? Actress, I got you know like um. You know, I, I, I try to I try to not to like you know get too much into a fantasy type world when it comes to actresses because there's some good looking women out there and stuff like that. So you you know, I've seen some movies in my lifetime, which you just it, it's hard not to see them as as as, 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 as like sex objects and everything. But um, I, you know, I I, I, don't, I really don't. I mean, from an actress standpoint, I, I don't really. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of blank with the with the women. You're just, killing me, Sean. You're yeah, killing me. He's playing it safe. He's playing it safe. I'm just yeah. I don't. I mean, well, tag me in. Tag <laughs> me in. I'll do it. <laughs> All right, uh, Vince. Vince. I'm gonna call a friend. Hey, Vince. <laughs> who's the best actress? Uh, Ali Berry. Oh man, they see like I said, but it's for all the wrong reasons. You're not talking about because monster ball. Yes, sir. That one's like, it's, and the problem is because of the sexuality of her, I can't even I can't even tell you about the acting part. I know she cried a little bit. She something happened to her. She was a little upset. But the, the, the you know the sex scenes and stuff like that's all I can really remember. And or like swordfish, or swordfish when she was um, bathing and showing you know the top like that kind of thing. Like I can't get past that. I, I, so I don't even know how good of an actress she is. Just because she's such a beautiful woman. Okay, I got uh, two. I got two I, more. I got two more questions for you. Favorite teammate? Oh, Kanal Lang. Kanal Lang. Oh, you know what? It's from a close second, though. Was that from the U? Kanal mm-hmm. Lang from the U. As, 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 as a as a player, while I was playing, he was he was him and Indy Kalu. Indy Kalu went to Rice University. Me and Indy were teammates at the Redskins, the Eagles, and the Houston Texans. Somehow. We ended up on th- on three teams together, um, so those are two of my, you know, Marco Coleman also. So those three guys, I still keep really good touch with them. But right now, as a as an alumni here in Kansas City, man, my man Billy Baber. All right, Billy Baber was a tight end who played behind Tony Gonzalez. Never touched the field, but let me tell you this: this this guy, I guarantee you, he was as good as Jimmy Graham. But he never could touch the field because he had Tony Gonzalez in front of him, and that's the way. That's the that's the the unfairness about the NFL is that when a team drafts you and has your rights for four years, they can sit on a superstar talent, but because you got a Hall of Fame talent in front of him, he can't never get on the field because at that time nobody ran two tight ends. Nobody, everybody went three receivers, uh, you know, one tight end, one back. And pass, and you can, you you could never take Tony Gonzalez off the field, especially in the in the red zone. So he just, I mean, his whole career was eaten up for four seasons playing behind Tony Gonzalez. He's one of the greatest tight ends never to touch the field. Uh, I had to practice against him all the time, and I was like, man, like this dude is so good, and he never plays. Okay. But he's a great friend of mine, man. Our families are real close. Uh, him, Kevin Lockett. Uh, Mike Maslowski, I play all those guys here in Kansas City, man. Those are great guys here in the community. So uh, those are my close friends now. Okay. All right. And the last one, maybe the hardest one. If you were trapped in a room 
<laughs> and with no way out, who would you want with you to help you find that way out? My Lord and Savior. 100%. He stays with me the whole time. I don't really, I'm, I mean, uh, uh, there's there's no human that can do really anything for me if I ain't got my Lord and Savior with me. So he, I find my peace and serenity with him every morning in Psalms, every night, in Proverbs, um, every every struggle, trial, and tribulation I've been through in life. I've uh, been able to pray my way through. He's always answered the call. He's always been truthful and honest. And everything he says, he will do, he has done. Um, resurrected me from all my sin as a player and as a person. Um, recreated me, helped me be a, a better father, a better husband, a better friend. Um, taught me about character and community and gave me a purpose to my life beyond uh, my, 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 my natural abilities and uh, anything that the world could, could see me as so man as long as you got you got god you know like you got you say say it's, 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 if you know christ you know you, you know peace if you don't know him then you don't have no peace there is no, there is no peace um without him so he that's my my lord and savior he's my my comforter my provider so that's there that's the that's the that's what i need you give me my bible um and i'll see everybody later <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Well, well, Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and we couldn't thank you enough for your time, uh, your gracious time. You spent a lot of time with us and, and the fans, and, and we thank you, Vince. All right, Sean, I just appreciate you spending the time, the extended time. Um, but I, I really do appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation, enjoyed the insight. So uh, hopefully we can do it again. And uh, I wish you all the best in, in all of the endeavors you have going. All right, we'll do it again in February. Once those Chiefs win the Super Bowl, we can do it right. I'll call you from my in-laws in Atlanta. I'll be down there in Atlanta rooting them on. Maybe we can, we can call you right after we finish the, the Super Bowl celebration. Uh, we can call and, and summarize uh, what went on at the Super Bowl. Let's do it. We're going to be on Radio Row for that. So <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see you there. Thanks again, Sean. We, appreci- we appreciate it, Sean. Thanks again. Well, Stevie D, once again, we had another great guest and learned a lot of insight, both about Sean as the person, but also insight about the game. You know, sometimes when we look at it from the outside, we see things a certain way, and it's always great to get a good introspect, if you will, with regards to the game that we love so much. So that that was awesome. Great to have him on. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that statement right there. Um, I thought you were right on point. It is a lot of insight that you just don't hear every day. And, you know, as fans of the sport, we really we really don't know. And uh, to have Sean's perspective on his time and certain things that are going on today in the game was fantastic. So, so that's going to wrap up another episode of Official Word Sports. Uh, as always, you can check us out on the web at officialwordsports.com. You can also check out our Facebook group. Uh, and then you can reach us on Twitter at RealOWSports. Signing off, I'm Vince. I'm Steve. We'll see you soon.